Good afternoon. Challenging the politics of despair. On behalf of Africa Watch, the Fund for Free Expression, and Penn American Center, I'm pleased to welcome you this afternoon to our panel discussion on, on writers and human rights in Africa. Hunger, drought, diseases, environmental degradation, regional political conflicts, and corruption have all contributed to the erosion of human rights in Africa. The situation calls for change. Historically, African writers have been very involved in the life and time of their societies. Some writers have been bureaucrats, some have held high government positions, some combine business literature and union activity, some are farmers, some are lawyers, some are educators, and some are exiled. Some African writers have been in the vanguard of those calling for change and greater freedom. And all too often, they have paid a heavy price in imprisonment, harassment, banning, and censorship. A few days ago, President Kenneth Kowanda of Zambia lost his presidency in the country's first multi-party election. Recently, we have been reading about the popular unrest in Zaire, and it now seems that the pressure on President Mobutu to resign has never been greater. We have seen similar outpourings of popular dissatisfaction in Togo and Kenya. In other countries such as Somalia, Sudan, and Liberia, we have seen the terrifying devastation left by civil war. And in Mozambique, we have seen the death and displacement of people at the hands of a mercenary army supported by Western governments. And in South Africa, we see the death toll mounting as the struggle against racial apartheid continues. There is no doubt that this impressive group of writers who have come here today, writers from seven different countries, some of whom live in exile, some of whom have stayed at home, will present us with a lively and unique interchange of ideas on what the African writer's role is in this time of difficulty. They will be addressing such questions as what can writers contribute, what penalties have they already paid for speaking out, how free are African writers to write, what does the future hold? The discussion will be moderated by Kwame Anthony Appiah, the distinguished philosopher and writer from Ghana. Appiah was educated at Clare College, Cambridge, and holds a PhD in philosophy. He has taught philosophy at the University of Ghana and at Cornell, Duke, and Yale Universities, and is professor at Harvard University's Department of African American Studies. He is the author of five books, including In My Father's House, Africa in the Philosophy of Culture, forthcoming uh, from the United Kingdom and from the United States, and Avenging Angel, uh, which will be published by St. Martin's Press in 1991. Apia has also authored numerous articles on subjects as diverse as philosophical logic and cultural politics in West Africa. He is currently working on the Oxford Book of African Literature and is editor of Transition Magazine with Henry Louis Gates. The last half of the program will be opened up to you, the audience. Those of you wishing to ask questions should raise your hand and come to one of the two microphones. 
Afterwards, I hope you will please join us for a reception outside the auditorium where you will get the chance to meet the, uh, the panelists in a more informal setting. On behalf of Pan American Center, I would also like to extend some warm and heartfelt thank yous to all of the participants and to Nam uh, Pugliese, uh, at the, uh, the New School for, for providing us with a forum, and to Bob Coover and to Bob Ariano, who organized the Festival, Festival of African Writing at Brown University, and who have so generously lent us their support for this event, and to the New York Council for the Humanities for their financial support of this event. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our forum. I want, if I may, to begin by saying a little about how we've agreed we shall proceed. We've asked our panelists to begin by speaking for a minute or two, uh, five maybe, about the current political situation in their countries of origin and how, if at all, it impacts the task of the writer. I will introduce each of them to you before he or she speaks. Then we shall go on to discuss, in a relatively unstructured way, a range of questions about African writing and African politics. We have a whole host of questions that we've agreed upon and we should, that we should like to discuss, and in the unlikely event that conversation flags, I shall put one or other of them to one or other of our panelists from time to time just to keep the conversation moving. Then after uh, about an hour and a half, I shall open the discussion by asking the, uh, for questions from you. May I ask you now, as I shall then, to be brief, to ask questions rather than make statements, and to raise issues as much as possible that can be addressed by all, or at least several of our panelists, rather than taking them up on issues internal to their individual works, uh, in order that we can draw as much profit as possible from this last hour, I shall police these policies in a sort of kinder, gentler fashion. <laughs> there will be opportunities after the public session to buttonhole individual writers at the reception which follows. As I was reflecting on today's meeting before I left home, I was reminded of how very natural it is to ask almost any of Africa's creative writers to reflect on the current political situation, both in their countries and in the continent as a whole, that it would be equally natural to ask for such reflections from a Russian or a Ukrainian or a Czech writer, and that it would not feel, and that I would not feel that it was so natural in the same way to ask a panel of representative writers from Britain, Canada, or the United States to reflect on such issues about their own situation. Most of the best-known and best-loved writing in the way of novels, short stories, and poetry in the ex-colonial languages of English, French, and Portuguese in Africa belongs to what Wolosheinka has called the literature of the social vision. When Ngugi Wationgo, the Kenyan writer, wrote, uh, I quote, the novelist at his best must feel himself heir to a continuous tradition, end quote, he did not mean, as an American writer might suppose, a purely literary tradition. He meant, as he then went on to say, the mainstream of his people's historical drama. It is not a simple question why this is, but surely the situation of most African writers today combines elements that make the call to reflect on cultural politics and on state politics almost irresistible. 
a recent colonial history, a multiplicity of diverse subnational indigenous traditions constantly being redefined, an intellectual tradition of a pan-African perspective, foreign languages whose metropolitan culture defined the natives by their race as inferior, a background of living oral literature, a modern literary culture still very much in construction. And perhaps, above all, a kind of raw and dangerous national politics dominated by the imperatives of survival in economically difficult times and the declining ability of the state to deliver the security and the development that was promised at independence. Tino Achebe once expressed the preoccupations of many of Africa's writers in a representative way, I think. He said, I'm an Igbo writer because this is my basic culture. Nigerian, African, and a writer. No, black first, then a writer. Each of these identities does call for a certain kind of commitment on my part. I must see what it is to be black, and this means being sufficiently intelligent to know how the world is moving and how the black people fare in the world. That is what it means to be black. Or an African, the same. What does Africa mean in our world? Each of our panelists has, I am sure, engaged in such reflections. And so let me turn now to our first panelist. Um, and I should uh, begin by saying that uh, the order is alphabetical and implies no other kind of precedence. Um, uh, Rashida Ismaili Abubakar was brought up in both Benin and Nigeria and has spent her adult years in the United States. She has a PhD in psychology and lectures in Afro-American and African studies at the Newark campus of Rutgers. She's the author of papers on political identity in African literary characters and also, for example, of an analysis of three African-American women writers, Gloria Naylor, Alice Walker, and Paula Marshall. She's also had her poems published widely in such journals as the Black Literary Review, Black Scholar, Shamal Press, Poetry East, and in many, many anthologies. And she's currently at work on a forthcoming collection entitled Missing in Action and Presumed Dead, which is to be published by Africa World Press. So, um, Rashida, your five minutes. Um, I, I guess the first thing would be to, to, to kind of uh, locate uh, how it is that somebody can be from two different countries, which again <laughs> um, implies um, a colonial imposition rather than um, cultural um, uh, ambiguity. Um, my two parents, grandparents, were friends and uh, in school, and they decided to marry their firstborn. Uh, and so I'm the child of my, my of those uh, of, of that arrangement. But um, um, and just in regard to to to, to the topic, um, I think also it's political that I have always considered myself a Dahomean rather than. Um, Benizoise because both my mother and I were born in Daome, and because that is the African name, uh, Daome, meaning on the belly of Dan. Um, and so for me, this, this word then locates me in the same way that you were quoting from Chinua, that I see myself um, of that territory, of those stories, and that the whole cultural milieu um, uh, expressing itself in, 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 in me. Um, the political situation um, later on dictated from outside caused the name of the country to be changed to Republic de Benin. 
And the reason for that is because the Bight of Benin goes through Dahomey and goes extended into uh, Nigeria. So for me, it is a geographic name and not an, uh, uh, an integral name that comes out of the people. And, and I think that, that that informs, to some extent, my work. In Nigeria, um, I, I see, um, just in terms of the, the discussion, the, the contradictions between um, um, the, the colonial language, or as I, Edward Said says, the world language of English, um, that uh, English is basically the language of instruction in most cases. And then, depending on the religion, um, you can have Latin if you were Catholic, you could have Arabic uh, if you were Muslim, you could have German if you were um, involved uh, with a, a German mission and so on. So that the African person, especially in West Africa, is a kind of melange of many different linguistic rhythms and, 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 and sounds uh, uh, in their ear, uh, ranging the whole gamut of Europe as well as the languages of Africa, and I think that those things bind us to the soil, and it makes of us, in a, in a pan-African sense, truly very African, and I guess that's how I, uh, I see myself. Thank you very much. Our next uh, writer is Ama Atta Aidu, who's from, born in Ghana, and now lives in a suitably pan-African way in Harare, in Zimbabwe. In 1964, she wrote her first play, Dilemma of a Ghost, which won immediate critical acclaim. And in 1969, she published Hanoa, her second play. The following year, she published a short story collection entitled No Sweetness Here. And in 1977, her first uh, novel, Our Sister Killjoy, which is a major work of contemporary African fiction. She's a noted poet as well. And her works, which are unconventional in form, examine, amongst other things, everyday life in Ghana. Her latest novel, Changes, is reported to be selling like hotcakes in London. Thank you very much. Um, I think I occupy some kind of a political gray land um, as I sit here. But first, I would want to say that it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you very much for sort of deciding to consume your Sunday coming to listen to us. Um, I'll explain why I think I occupy some kind of a political gray land. I'd been a minister of education for 18 incredible months in Ghana, and about the 17th, you know, just about the 17th month, I drafted my resignation and showed it to one of the more top members of our government. A couple of weeks later, something curious happened. Uh, a successor was uh, appointed for, you know, for the post I occupied, which was the uh, PNDC Secretary for Education or Minister of Education, without any mention of me. You know, like, I, I mean, there just was no mention of me at all. Uh, like I hadn't ever been uh, minister. Anyhow, a few months after this, a combination of personal considerations propelled me to Zimbabwe, where I've lived rather precariously as a full-time self-employed writer. And my gray land, uh, I think 
um, I defined the, the area I occupy as gray because one, as an African, I refuse to even describe myself as an exile if I'm living in Zimbabwe, another African country. And two, during this whole period, I've been, um, I've been uh, what my mother describes as, a farmer who stops working at the end of the day but doesn't go home. That is, I shrink from going home back to Ghana because I'm not so sure uh, that I'll be able to keep my mouth shut. Uh, on the other hand, I have also refrained from joining up with any of the groups of my erstwhile comrades who are in proper exiles in places like London in open denunciation of the regime only because, in retrospect, I'm not so sure I can trust them any more than the comrades who are still in government. And, uh, as, and I, I know what I'm talking about because I, as a woman who had to work as one of, you know, very few women, two or three in government, I discovered that it gets to a stage where people simply do not even, you know, consider you are around because of this. Uh, um, over the past eight years that I've lived in Zimbabwe, I've on occasion had to be in London and been with groups, you know, again, one or two women here and there. And something always happens which has impressed me. Uh, I don't want to say dismayed, and I'll tell you what. Uh, in a meeting, you discover that when a man is speaking, Forgive me, but it doesn't matter what drivel he's, you know, he's spewing forth. You know, all the men stop. Everything stops, and they are looking, and they are taking in the words. When you, a woman, as soon as you open your mouth, people begin to sort of shuffle, look over your head, look out if they are smoking, look out for their cigarettes. You know what I mean? Pass notes to one another. And I said, Amatedu. Uh, our people say that if you don't know what death is like, just check out sleep. You know what I mean? So it has made me very kind of withdrawn. And uh, for the future, I'm just writing my things from Harare and checking the situation out very carefully. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next uh, speaker is Jack Mapanji, who was born in south, southern Malawi, and he's a theoretical linguist with degrees from the University of Malawi and uh, the University of London. He's the editor of Oral Poetry from Africa, which was published in the early 80s by Longmans, and Summer Fires, New Poetry of Africa, which was published by Heinemann in 1983 as well. He's also an internationally acclaimed poet in his own right, and his first collection of Chameleons and Gods was published in 1981, and Out of Bounds, a new collection, is forthcoming. On September the 25th, 1987, Jagmapanji was arrested and held without charge or trial until his release on May the 11th, 1991, exactly six months ago today. So you can understand that it's with special pleasure that I ask him to speak to us now.
I'll be very brief. Um, first of all, I would like to express my gratitude for being allowed uh, by the organizers of this um, discussion to come to the U.S. This is the first time I've ever been here. Um, that gives me a chance to say, technically, that I can say anything. Um, because this is the first time. First, I'm delighted to be here and to participate in these discussions. Um, second, I'm rather disadvantaged. Um, after four years out of circulation, I got out of detention on May the 10th, to be exact. And thank you for helping me to celebrate this this occasion of my release. But I've come to a world where the Berlin Wall has been demolished, Nelson Mandela has been released, and people in Africa and everywhere are talking about multi-partism. Um, I belong myself um, to two tribes. My mother is Nyanja. My father is Yao. So tribalism to me is not an interesting exercise. But effectively, whatever I believe in clearly will be affected by the circumstances that are changing. Um, as a writer, I have always considered myself, and this some of you might consider to be strange, that I have been living in exile, which is strange, um, because there has been a definition of exile um, which has always tended to be associated with passports and the rejection of one's national um, passports. I'm not in the business of that, if only because to a writer that is a simplistic approach to the problem of either living in exile or writing in exile. Um, I was saying once upon a time in Stockholm in 1986 that some of these divisions um, are rather simplistic. There are people in Africa who are writing um, technically not exile, living in exile in the technical sense, but in fact distancing themselves sufficiently from what's going on around them to, for the world or for themselves to be in a position to say they are actually living in exile. Um, if I wanted to live in exile, I don't think I would find it very difficult at all because I've been doing it all along. Um, but as I said, um, these are just introductory remarks. I'll participate in the rest of the discussion. If I am rude, excuse me, um, but I'll answer any questions, including any rude ones you want to ask later on. Um, obviously, because um, this will be the first time. Next time I come to New York, I'll probably not answer any questions at all. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you very much. Sure.
V.Y. Mudimbe is the Ruth Duvernay Professor of Romance Studies and Comparative Literature at Duke University and the former Dean of the Faculty of Philosophy and Letters at the National University of Zaire. He's lectured extensively on African literature and philosophy at eminent institutions spanning four continents, including the Lumen Vitae Institute in Brussels, the universities of Bonn, Mons, Vienna, Brazzaville, Indiana, and Princeton. He has edited and co-authored numerous books and is the acclaimed author of over 20 of his own, including four novels, Entre les Eaux and Le Belli Monde, translated into English and published by Simon & Schuster as Between the Tides and Before the Birth of the Moon, Les Cars, and more recently, Chabat II. Professor Modimbe is also one of the most distinguished of Africa's philosophers, the founder and executive secretary of the Society for African Philosophy in North America, uh, the author of one of the most important interventions in uh, African philosophy of recent years, The Invention of Africa, and of many reflections on post-colonial situation, including L'Odeur du Père. It's a pleasure to welcome V.Y. Mudimbe. I thank you, Anthony. <clears throat> I would like to begin by um, thanking the organizers of uh, this forum. My name is uh, V.Y. Mudimbe. I was born in uh, Zaire in uh, 1941. When, when I uh, go back to my past, there is a date, and uh, a recent one, which makes me understand what I am today, 1960, the year of uh, independence of uh, the Belgian Congo, now Zaire. A year of sorrow, the promise of uh, a political autonomy turned to be a nightmare actualized in uh, a civil war. I observed this war from uh, far away, specifically from uh, a neighboring country Rwanda, where I was living as uh, a novice and a member of a small Belgian community, a small Belgian and Benedictine community. Did uh, the geographical distance and uh, the solitude, did uh, these amplify the Congolese tragedy? The perpetual silence in the monastery the regular examinations of conscience, and my own detachment from uh, the external world sharpened both my pessimism and my will to take the side of uh, innocent victims in uh, this fratricide war. Around me, around our island of peace at uh, Guindamuyaga, another tragedy was going on another civil war, another fratricide confrontation between Hutu and Tutsi of Rwanda. There, I couldn't be protected by the walls of my monastery. And I couldn't simply reduce the reality of corpses into an intellectual analysis which would elegantly combine my skepticism about the goodness of humans and my vocation as a Benedictine monk. I had to take side, and I did. It was politically the wrong side, the wrong one, that of Tutsi, who were then persecuted, 
sought after and killed like animals. It is then that I lost my innocence and my faith in the rationality of politics and of politicians, all of them. The Tutsi were not for me part of any political game, but the wounded and the corpses that week after week, month after month, I wanted to care for and I chose to serve because someone, some people, in the name of a political reason which was not humanly reasonable, were sacrificed. I knew then, during my long nights with these corpses, that they will accompany me till the end of my life. At 20, I wasn't an adolescent any longer. I wasn't even a nice Benedictine any longer a nice novice, but a hardened adult who had little to believe in and much to oppose. It is thus quite logical that twice, firstly in 1964 and secondly in 1965, I'll be in the Quilu province, then ravaged by another civil war in the Congo. Sure, I didn't have a machine gun with me, fighting with uh, the insurgents who, for good reasons, were opposing the government of Kinshasa. Living voluntarily on the margin of the area they were controlling in a community of German and Hollandese priests of a divine world, my official task was then to teach Latin to seminarians. Yet the real meaning for my being there was my sympathy for a cause and my willingness to help eventually the wounded and the dead. In France and in Belgium, between 1966 and 1970, I was happy enough to have the most most remarkable mentors, intellectual guides, and friends one can dream of, and to name just a few who have left us, I can cite, Jean-Paul Sartre, Louis Althusser, and Michel Foucault. They gave me analytical tools for analyzing the reasons of the endemic violence in Central Africa and of understanding it from a rigorous grid. But my work was already there, reflect and reflection of what I had been living since I was a Benedictine monk in Rwanda. In effect, all my books, even the most philosophical ones, are about violence and about death. In poetry, three collections of poems, Déchirure, Entretaille, Les Fuseaux Parfois, as their titles indicate already, they are all of them about fragmentation, wounds, and irrationality. All my four novels are directly and explicitly linked to the reality of social disconnections, spiritual ruptures, and political rebellions. The most important theoretical essays of mine, L'autre face du royaume, L'odeur du père, The invention of Africa, and Parables and Fables, are concerned with uh, philosophical issues dealing with the experience of alienation of social and uh, human sciences. Should I add that it is the social 
and the academic context of my country that made possible this questioning. In the mid-70s, a number of my African students in Lubumbashi were arrested for political reasons and jailed without trial. After our school of philosophy and letters failed to secure their rights legally and their freedom, with three other senior, senior colleagues, we decided to confront the state by inviting all our colleagues and students to go on strike. Indeed, we were jailed, the four of us. What we went through, what I did experience then, is simply put, nothing, really nothing, compared to what hundreds of people in my country have gone through. It is nothing compared to the symbol of an army of corpses I have been living with since I was 19 years old. Apart from uh, my two doctoral dissertations, which dealt one with uh, the concept of air in ancient Greek, Latin, and French, and the second with uh, the Russian political philosopher, Berbarov, apart from these two books, and I am not sure that I am right, but apart from these two books, all my works is a pessimistic one. I have never written a happy book, even the most philosophical ones, and I think I will never write a happy book. This is a choice of mine by fidelity to and in memory of all the dead whom I chose as companions of road since I was a young Benedictine monk in Rwanda in the early 60s. Um, our next writer is uh, Umbelelo Mzamani from South Africa. He was educated at the University of Botswana Lesotho in Swaziland, and he holds a PhD in English literature from Sheffield University in England. He currently teaches Pan-African and Third World Literatures and African and International Studies at the University of Vermont. His novels include My Cousin Comes to Joburg in 1981 and Children of Soweto in 1982. And his latest book, Children of the Diaspora, is forthcoming. He's also edited books of poetry and short fiction, and the selected poems of uh, Mongani Sirote, the selected poems of Siposa Pamla, and Hungry Flames and other black South African stories. And he is co-editor of Images of the Voiceless, Essays on Popular Culture and Art. Thank you, Tony. And like everybody else on this platform, I'd like to uh, put on record my own thanks uh, to the organizers of these events and certainly to all of you who have taken time off uh, to, to come to this event. It's very, very significant for us who are used to being marginalized, who are used not to, to, to not being listened to, like uh, my sister Amma was saying. Uh, I, I come from South Africa. Uh, I am of the same age as apartheid. <laughs> and my life, therefore, 
has been shaped by apartheid as few lives have, have, have been shaped by, by apartheid. Uh, when I started school, I started school the year apartheid introduced that notorious act uh, in parliament, the Bantu Education Act. So even my education uh, began to take uh, the form of programming rather than education. Uh, I am of the generation variously described as uh, the black consciousness generation, sometimes Soweto and so on, whatever those terms uh, mean. I'm proposing here that uh, I, because of my circumstances, often find that my themes choose me rather than that I choose my themes. I want also to propose that one useful approach to South African literature might be to see it, to see most of it at least, as being closely related to, closely affected by political historical events, which it reflects and which often either help retard the literature, like life in general, or sometimes promote, facilitate, generally give some fuel to it. It's a two-way sort of process, thus. It can be both stimulating, but it can also be stifling. Uh, and therefore, most of this literature needs to be understood, like I think literature everywhere, anyhow, but this is specific to the the, the, the rather abnormalities of the South African situations that uh, the literature, the culture, the politics is better understood uh, in that kind of context, in that kind of history, in that kind of historical uh, progress. Uh, if you understand this, if you situate yourself in this particular uh, 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 dynamic or, 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 or framework, uh, you then are better prepared to understand the movement of South African history, like the movement of South African literature. Uh, I can only talk in this brief uh, two minutes of more recent events, uh, meaning uh, events since my own birth, since the birth of apartheid. That's very, very recent. Uh, it used to be that we spoke of South African literature as protest, as protest literature. Protest was indeed the, 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 the dominant mode of political uh, responses in South Africa. Uh, protest whereby we marched out in the street, uh, we tried to sensitize, uh, we tried to uh, uh, reach out, uh, we tried one way or the other to influence those who had the power to influence changes in our country. We were talking really very much to the power structure, seeking reforms rather than revolution. I think this mode of politics changed, certainly after 1960, definitely after 1976, and took perhaps a form we might describe as challenge. I think the literature of challenge, some, something some people have called the literature of combat, is quite different from the literature of protest. Part of this, of course, had to do with the manner in which uh, the liberation movements had tired of, of speaking to a government and a people who clearly had no capacity to hear 
and they began to talk amongst themselves, uh, to sensitize one another, to conscientize one another, to mobilize within the communities. It took a decisive step, I think, which was in line uh, with what the literature was doing. In fact, I might hazard the opinion that the literature at each stage for, sort of foretold these particular events. The literature foreshadowed many of these particular developments on the literary sphere. And the current situation then in which we find ourselves in South Africa is a situation in which I think the politics must once again re, re realign itself, change, change gear for sure. Uh, beyond protest and revolt, we are at a stage now where we need some kind of creative, uh, transcendent strategies, both politically as well as uh, literary uh, in, in that kind of way. We know now for a fact oppression exists, as Njabula has pointed out repeatedly in his writing, uh, but what we, we have to ponder about creatively is, is the fact that people exist there, people survive there, people thrive there, and because people thrive there, people have been creative fighters there rather than victims. And to reflect this and translate it into tropes for our contemplation is as much the challenge of the writer in South Africa as it is the challenge of the politician to create a new order that goes beyond apartheid, that goes beyond revolt, that goes beyond protest, that goes beyond challenge towards reconstruction. Indeed, that is where I think South African literature at this point in time comes from. Uh, as a literary historian, I've tried to do two things. One, I've tried to monitor, to record, as well as to explicate most of this literature that comes from this era. But as a creative writer also, I've abrogated to myself the challenges of a writer who sees himself in line with the liberation movement, but also beyond that as historical witness. Thank you. Njabulu Ndebele was born in Johannesburg, educated at the University of Botswana Lesotho in Swaziland at the Roma campus in Lesotho. He has an MA from Cambridge University in Britain and a PhD from Denver. He taught for many years at the National University of Lesotho, which he left in January of this year uh, with the rank of Deputy Vice-Chancellor to his current position where he is chair and head of African literature at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. His publications include Fools and Other Stories, which won the Noma Award, many essays on literature and culture in South Africa, a children's book due this year, uh, Bululo and the Peach Tree, and some essays also being published this year, uh, Rediscovery of the Ordinary. Uh, Njabula Ndebele is the current president of the Congress of South African Writers. Welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Anthony. Um, as Anthony had observed, um, I returned uh, early this year uh, to South Africa after 21 years uh, of, of, of absence. And I recall that uh, sometime in, uh, in February, um, I took uh, my family on what I'd hoped was going to be a surprise to them one Sunday afternoon and said to them, I have something to show you. Uh, we got into the car and left uh, the apartment in which we lived temporarily, belonging to the University of the Witwatersrand. 
and I took them, I drove in the direction of uh, Western Native Township, which is where I was born uh, in 1948, on the 4th of July. Um, the, we set out unknown to them, but known to me, uh, in order to show them where I was born. But when we got closer to where I was born, I found that uh, this, the place had been totally rearranged. Uh, the names of the streets that I remembered were gone, and these were names of, uh, which commemorated the important people of that community. Uh, names like uh, uh, John Mohotlo, Simenya, and, and all Mohlongo, and all those. They were not there anymore. And the place had been totally rearranged such that the old houses uh, could not easily be identified anymore. The, it seems to have mysteriously shrunk in size. And when I got there, I could not show my family where I was born. And uh, I was uh, someone, therefore, who has set out to return home, uh, but ne did not find home. Uh, this was a, a second experience, because in the mid-50s, we moved to an eastern township called uh, Chatterston, which is the setting of all my stories in this book called Fools and Other Stories. I returned there on a brief visit and found that uh, the entire community uh, had been moved uh, to a place called Duduza. And they had to move for, for no reason other than that the white urban residences where, where the, the, the urban, the, the, the white suburb was expanding towards us. And, and for that reason, that township had to be moved some, uh, some uh, 10 miles away from the, the center of the city. So once more, I, I came back home at that time uh, not to find uh, my home. Maybe this is, is a, a, a metaphor, an experience that one may wish to ponder over a little bit more seriously, because there is a sense sense uh, returned home uh, but uh, I'm not sure that we have found home and and this is a uh, is is a uh, is, is something that uh, all of us will need to to think about uh, seriously where is home what is it that will go up into making this home what direction will the building take what will the architecture look like? What kind of life is going to be to, to go on inside this new home in the house that still has to be built? When I've had occasion to observe since my visit uh, that uh, the problems of, uh, of South Africa as a result of apartheid still exist the fact that 
the Immorality Act has been removed from the statute books, the Land Act of 1913 has been repealed, the influx control laws and the past laws have gone. The fact that all these have disappeared uh, does not mean much to the average life of uh, uh, an African in South Africa. The housing crisis still remains. People, as it were, have come home and not found homes because they have nowhere to live. They want to go to school, but they don't find schools. They want work, but they don't find work. And I can go on and on and on, which is to suggest that we still have quite some, some distance to traverse. When, uh, and, and maybe we have to, to, to search for a context against which to find meaning to all this. Recently, I've had occasion to reread a book that I read some 10 years ago by uh, Chancellor Williams called uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization, in which he attempts to trace the history of Africa from its beginnings in ancient Egypt and traces in a very short space of time, is able to, to, to put across a heroic struggle uh, over, over uh, uh, thousands and thousands of years. Is this the context against which to, to find meaning? I don't know. But certainly, uh, the search for an identity, the search for a home, a real home, is the consuming passion of each and every South African. And I should dare say also that it is a home to which we would like the whole world that has given us so much support to be able to visit. And there's a sense in which, therefore, uh, all of us are participating in the reconstruction of this home, in defining it, in decorating it, and in attempting to, to give a stability to it that will uh, nurture uh, a new civilization. Thank you very much. Uh, Tess Onweme, our next uh, writer, is currently a professor of multicultural literary studies at Montclair State College in New Jersey. And she's one of Africa's leading playwrights. She served as the first woman president of the Association of Nigerian Authors from 1986 to 1989. Her plays include the internationally performed and award-winning The Desert Encroaches of 1985 and The Broken Calabash, the latter of which portrays a woman who revolts against Nigeria's patriarchal society. Onremo has published many scholarly articles on African drama, but her best-known work in, this, in the area, in the New York area on the East Coast is probably Legacies, which is to be read by the new Federal Theatre in New York on December the 7th, uh, perhaps in anticipation of a full-scale production by then. Welcome. I hope you don't mind if I dislocate the established order so far by standing up to speak instead of sitting. I'm tired of sitting. I'm impatient with sitting. Burdened Africa should be tired of sitting. The, rep uh, the repressed black world 
should now be tired of sitting and rise up like a hen in the rain to gather her chicks that are in disarray, especially in the context of contemporary convergences, and we're all witnesses. The Berlin Walls, as uh, one of us has already um, reminded us, have crumbled, and there are crossings and bridges across the East, the Soviet Union. Why should it be different with us that are black? It is this sense of urgency that informs my works, especially my most recent work, Legacies and Riot in Heaven, which will soon be forthcoming. Now that I'm standing, let me also inform you that I come from a lineage of people of tradition, the Anyocha Igbo society, whose pride and identity and dignity was vested in the collective spirit of community. And in this sense, when the people gathered together in any formal situation of discourse. The individual who rose up to speak lent the ritual and had to demonstrate that ritual of harnessing the collective uh, voices of the community to speak as one people, as one voice, even when at the end of the day they agreed to disagree. It's a community that celebrated life, death, greeting, and it is this ritual, constant ritual, of collective communal affirmation of whatever they stood for that also forms the bedrock of whatever I do in my writing. So. In that sense, I am going to appropriate you all into the Anyochaibo world now and have us uh, um, exercise that ritual somehow. So what I would like you to do when I call upon you uh, is to answer A, and if possible, bring down this roof with your voices. Kwanu. <laughs> Kwanu. Now, what has happened to these chorus of voices in our contemporary context? Why is it that instead of this chorus, the strength of the chorus of voices, we now have chattering of individual voices. And this community, which had the ability and the confidence in its own power to control its destiny, its own identity, its own 
image making, making its heroes. Why is it that our world, not just this localized uh, uh, world of uh, the Anuacha Igbo, or the Igbo, or the Nigerian, or the African, or the black world in general, why is it that in our world today, we no longer have that ability to create our own images, to create our myths of heroism, to be in control of who becomes our heroes and define the basic concepts of who our heroes should be. Why is it that we now have ceded the power of naming our own heroes and formulating the policies to the outsider? That question I leave to Sima in your minds for now. I shall tell you, you know, a short folktale, which is also informative of the kind of world that our ancestors, the ancestors that I, I my own fathers and great-grandfathers have told me about that was the kind of world and the idea of heroism and the sense of uh, community. It's supposed to be reflected in this folktale. Unfortunately, uh, Chinua Achebe uses the same folktale uh, in um, uh, Things Fall Apart. It's the story of uh, the tortoise and the birds. They were going on a journey to heaven. The tortoise, of course, didn't have wings and feathers and couldn't fly. But he had to go with these birds. Naturally, the birds were endowed. And in order to fly with them, the tortoise pleaded with each of them to lend him a some kind of feather. So at the end of the day, he was able to a costume like the rest, and they carried him to heaven. And before they left, they decided, <coughs> each of them, that they were going to take a name for, by which they would all be recognized at this uh, conference in heaven. And all the other birds took on some dignifying name, and the tortoise simply said his own name was all of you. And when they got to heaven, their hosts presented them with all kinds of uh, you know, nice things. Of course, that's your image of heaven. Uh, they had the best to eat. And each time the food was presented, it was, of, of course, presented to all of you. So the tortoise consumed everything because his name was all of you. <laughs> and it came to a point where the, animal, the birds you know, got really uh, ang um, um, annoyed about this, and they were starving. So they decided that, that they were going to um, have a, a negative kind of sanction on the tortoise. And the best way to teach the, the tortoise uh, the lesson was to take back their wings and feathers. So 
on a, on a certain day, they decided that they were going to do it, and they all took back their wings and feathers from the tortoise. So on the day they were supposed to go back, the tortoise had no way of flying back. They had taken back the power. They gave him the authority. They gave him the strength. And now the birds had taken back that which empowered the tortoise. And he was left hanging when all the birds flew back. He fell from heaven onto the earth and crashed. Well, somehow our people explain that that is why the back of the tortoise is so uh, jagged the way it is. And someone, you know, some uh, kind people gathered him together and put him together. So all of you lost the power of all of you. The reason I'm telling this uh, tale is to enable us to reflect on the situation in, a, in, a, in a Nigeria, in Africa, in the black world today. Why is it that the birds were able, as a group, to decide that they would impose sanction on this non-conformist, on this traitor, on this exploiter, on this opportunist, on their own sense of well-being, on their life. It seems to me that the world that our own forefathers passed down to us was one in which they had full control of their own image making. And now our problem seems to be that we have, as a people, decided, not you know, willingly, but we have become afraid to control, to decide how we make our own images. In fact, to a ridiculous extent, it seems to me that the new tortoise, the new hero of our world, is not a tortoise, but a shark. And we are allowing the sharks to decide for us, to name themselves, and impose their will on us. And we are acting helpless, acting helpless, because I think, I still think, that our world, we should be able to find a way of harnessing that collective energies within us. And the spirit, that it, spirit of collectivism and community to harness our multiple energies and impose negative sanction on whatever or whoever the forces of regression uh, are. Unfortunately, these two, uh, the new uh, uh, sharks, uh, who are the dominant heroes, are, being, uh, are under the remote control of IMF and the scepter of Western neo-imperialism. And we continue to, uh, uh, we are down already, and we scream that we are down. Who is to take us up? Who is to make us rise, if not us? And if we continue to act helpless, I would imagine that there will be nothing else but death. He who is down needs fear no fall, they say. 
But we are down and we still fear falling. When shall we rise? The other thing I want to also say is that it appears to me too that we are, uh, um, our own society is one that is suffering from Abiku or the Obanje syndrome, if I may explain that. The Abiku or the Obanje in Igbo or Yoruba uh, mythology is the child that is born to die, is suffering from uh, some kind of transition between two worlds, the world, of the, the world of the spirits and the world of the dead. And as a writer, uh, uh, the writer, the position of the writer in, in, uh, in a modern day to me should be one uh, of uh, a diviner, the one who works in conjunction with the community to wrest the Abiku child or the Obanje child from the evil world of the spirit and uh, impose health or re uh, retrieve uh, the health of that child. So on that note, let me say that uh, my own commitment, uh, my own um, uh, contribution as a, as a writer is very much like that of the one who is a diviner, who has to uh, uh, give back that confidence in the power of the people to uh, uh, wake up and retrieve the dying child, the Abiku child, from the world of the spirit, instead of allowing it to die and go with the ghosts of death. Thank you very much. Tayeb Saleh, who had originally planned a career in agriculture, instead chose to pursue broadcasting and writing. He was educated at Khartoum University and various universities in London, worked in the Sudan and in the Gulf, and has been working uh, in UNESCO for the last 10 years. His 1969 novel, Seasons of Migration to the North, tells the story of an African scholar abroad in London. And his other works include the well-known The Wedding of Zayn and other stories. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that Tayyip Saleh's writing in uh, Arabic has been one of the great forces for revivifying uh, writing in the Arabic language and in creating a modern tradition of uh, Arabic writing that draws on uh, orality and um, a more demotic form of uh, speech. Tayyip Saleh. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, I wish I, I, I didn't have to speak after the, the fiery words of uh, this young lady, very moving. And um, since I have come at the end of the queue, I shall be very brief to let you get on with asking the questions. Now, I also would like to confess that I have been living for a very long time outside the Sudan, not by compulsion, but by choice. Uh, one thing led to another, one job led to another. Uh, so I cannot claim any heroism, really. And I was quite content to 
live in this uh, not unpleasant exile, I'm afraid to say, uh, and go to the Sudan once or twice a year, commuting, as I used to say, glibly, now I realize, between two states of uh, existence. Um, of course, a lot has been written about exile and the very fact that you are not in your country and how it affects your psyche and that, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I think perhaps exile, in a way, for uh, a creative person, writer or poet or painter or whatever, is not so much not be living in, in their own country, but not being able to go back when they want to. I think it was uh, Robert Frost, wasn't it, who said, home is where when you go, they have to take you in. <laughs> now, the, <laughs> I like that. I like that very much. Uh, there are uh, in Africa now and other parts of the world governments who feel that they don't have to take you in, that you, you can go to hell. Um, and I think that probably becomes the real exile. Uh, I don't want to talk about exile because I'm sure you have your own views, but it occurs to me that it, it, it is not that bad for the creative person. Uh, I mean, it's not bad for the material. It is bad for the person. And the tension between these two things is rather uh, interesting. The Sudan, um, I must say, used to be, even under the British rule, the truth must be said, and please don't misunderstand me that I am defending colonization or, or any such thing. I, I am against colonization as much as anybody else. But the truth must be said that we had a rather mild form of colonization, which probably did not work in our favor in the end, because it gave us the wrong impression that Colonizers are very nice gentlemen, you know. Uh, whereas they, we know for a fact that the concept is evil and it should shouldn't happen. Now it 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 evolved a kind of tolerance, very remarkable, really, over the centuries. A kind of synthesis between religions and concepts and ways of life which served us very well. And the British, to their great credit, understood that and did not interfere with it. Then, uh, after independence, I mean, quite quickly, we had forms of governments which somehow uh, kept that form of tolerance. And no matter how, um, rough a government was, it always softened this tradition we had, softened the cruelty of, of the inevitable relationship between power 
and uh, writers or the people. Then, I, I'm sorry to say, we uh, now have a different kind of setup. People, uh, and I need not go into much detail, uh, who have got a very, very decided views about what should be done. And they will not brook any opposition from anybody else. We know that this type of person is really horrible. I mean, you cannot uh, uh, do much with them except to get rid of them. And there exists actually here, there is present here now among you, a very distinguished Sudanese scholar who was a professor of English in Khartoum University, uh, Dr. Professor Abdullah Ali Abbas, who was actually imprisoned by this lot. Now, this is new in our uh, dealings, and I think it does indicate something particularly nasty uh, happening in the Sudan. I'll stop there, not because I don't have much to say, but I'll, I'll let you have the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Tayyip Saleh's last remarks, which should remind us that there are, of course, a substantial differences between different parts of the continent, and if things are getting worse in some places, it's surely true that people have the sense that things may be getting better in some places too. And against the context of many remarks which come back to the question of how it's uh, of the role of the writer and are, uh, in particular, of the uh, assumption which Ahmad Aydou expressed that an Africa's writer's home is anywhere in Africa, I'd like us, if that's possible, the panel for a while, to turn to the question of, of Pan-Africanism or of the relationship which um, Tesson Weme also alluded to of um, Africans of the continent to Africans of the diaspora, and to ask whether in the current climate with the changes occurring in many parts of Africa, that sense of Pan-Africanism, which is an old tradition in the black world, both in Africa and in the diaspora, uh, has come to have new meanings. New meanings since the release of Nelson Mandela. New meanings perhaps because of the creation of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Uh, is, there, is there a new uh, Pan-Africanism? And I'd like to ask Amata Aidu to <laughs> start with that, since she so firmly announced herself to be at home anywhere in the continent. <laughs> See, now I'm being pilloried for saying that, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, um, I, I, I would want to undercut the question, Anthony, if you don't mind. I do not even think that Pan-Africanism has flagged to, you know what I mean? There isn't a new Pan-Africanism, or that's not how I see it, or some of us see it. It has been a continuum. I mean, the, the you know, Pan-Africanism is an ongoing story. Uh, I, I, and, I, and I think that uh, until and when uh, we have had either the sense of one global Africa 
or the reality of a united Africa, you know, concretized before us. Pan-Africanism is not just an idea that dies and gets renewed. I think it is ongoing. In fact, you know, I was telling you about, I didn't want to go into details, but some of these meetings I attended, I've been attending recently, uh, have been in connection with the desire to organize the seventh Pan-African Congress. I'm sure you know about it. It's, you know, w w one day we think it's going to be in Nigeria, another day we, we think it's going to be in Zimbabwe and so on. So it is really an ongoing, an ongoing thing. And um, of course, uh, the, 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 the release of Ma Nelson Mandela uh, has catalyzed, I mean, you know, um, has, has been, you know, um, a catalyst really uh, for, for so many other things, including Pan-Africanism. But I would, I would hesitate to say that there is a new Pan-Africanism. It's the same old Pan-Africanism, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, there is a, a certain problem I also uh, see in this. Um, Africa, is Africa one, do we have one Africa? Are you asking me? Well, all of us. <laughs> There's an assumption of an Africa. Um, I know what, you know, when you and I talk about Africa, we know what we mean, and uh, maybe at, the, at that level of uh, rhetoric and, uh, uh, you know, consciousness, yes. But it, it, it would appear to me that uh, whoever decided to name uh, regions in Africa as Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, and so on and so forth, also systematically destroyed or built worlds around Africa, or that the Africa that was known previously. And somehow, until these worlds are broken down and we no longer uh, see one another as different, and as uh, someone who is from uh, Francophone and from Anglophone uh, Af uh, Africa, our journey is still at the verge of beginning. The, in, um, and um, when I talk about worlds here, yeah, I'm not just talking about the political worlds in terms of uh, uh, naming the countries and uh, having different colonial uh, 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 masters uh, who uh, name them and uh, admi administer them. I also mean uh, the linguistic worlds that have been built around us. So, for example, the one who uh, writes in French or speaks or writes in Portuguese and uh, other foreign languages is definitely not, you know, speaking on the same wavelength. We can't understand each other. So, you know, the problem seems to me uh, much, much uh, larger than that. And then uh, we have not even started talking about bridge, bridging the long, long uh, uh, gap uh, or creating the bridge across the Atlantic between the Africa and the, and the, and the motherland and in the diaspora. So, uh, yeah.
No, I mean, without making it a two-woman exchange, which is very new. I mean, you never have two women exchanges. Uh, I just wanted to clarify the point. That, I mean, it is precisely to arrive at some some notion of, I mean, of our own concept of Africa that, that, that there has been this ongoing Pan-Africanist movement from, I mean, where? Almost, I mean, the Pan-Africanism was born almost simultaneously with, with the conference in Berlin that divided us up. So, I mean, the, the, the movement has been going in parallel with the desire or the efforts of our conquerors to divide. I mean, if we can go on, I mean, there is a continental Africa, and of course, there is uh, a non-continental Africa, but I don't think that this forum can exhaust uh, the different concepts of Africa that we are trying to, you know, mm -hmm. merge into a notion of Africa. Could I ask for a comment from the author of The Invention of Africa? <laughs> uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, I might uh, very be critical and uh, say, you write what's Africa after all. Here we are representing a highly limited number of uh, countries from Africa. We don't have people from uh, Angola. We don't have many people from uh, uh, Francophone Africa. We have no one from uh, Hispanic Africa. And uh, we don't have anyone. We have no one from Ethiopia and so on. So somehow we do represent ourselves. And uh, speaking the name of Africa, we are speaking in the name of a project. Secondly, I would like to add uh, Another fact, I turned personally to believe against this pessimistic view that uh, there is today uh, a sentiment uh, that uh, there is a Africa, a Africa that has been uh, created, uh, invented, arranged, organized, colonized, uh, well, very explicitly at the end of the 19th century. Yet we might go back to, let's say, to the, the end of the 15th century in order to uh, retrace the history of uh, this invention of a continent which became the Africa we do know now in terms of uh, 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 its uh, linguistic colonization, in terms of uh, uh, its uh, boundaries, in terms of uh, uh, the languages we are using, in terms of uh, uh, the new type of education we are referring to, and in terms of uh, the literature we are talking about, which is a literature in English, in French, in Spanish, and uh, in Portuguese. And uh, the case of uh, Arabic literature is an interesting one because sometimes the northern part of Africa is African, and uh, sometimes it's not Africa. <laughs> and uh, we have been, uh, you know, struggling with uh, this idea, with this concept. Is the northern part of Africa part of the continent or not? And finally, let me add this, which is more sentimental. Back in uh, the 60s, when we were meeting Francophone and uh, Anglophone, it was very, very difficult to uh, exchange ideas because we didn't or because we didn't want, or because we were conditioned not to want to communicate. 
uh, that we use to communicate and through the services of translators. And uh, now in the 30s, it is my feeling that you find, at least in Francophone Africa, more and more people, more and more intellectuals who are capable of making themselves understood in English. And uh, we can have in English in this country, in French, in uh, Francophone countries, exchange between Africans coming from different backgrounds. And uh, well, in that sense, I do believe there is a Africa today. Could I ask just to take up a point of Amat Aydou's um, about concretizing this, about concretizing this, uh, this project of Pan-Africanism, what people think about the role of writers in supporting institutions like the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Are there ways in which you as writers feel you can contribute to um, giving concrete reality to these um, institutions the OAU set up the um, African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Are there ways in which writers, as along with other citizens, can contribute to making those institutions real pan-African institutions in the sense of institutions that operate over the whole geographical range of Africa and operate for good? Um, if, if I can go back a little bit to sort of make a contribution to the discussion that has just been going on which is that I have a, a, a personal experience of, a, of a ordinary people, uh, for example, uh, trying to travel uh, from, say, Zimbabwe to go to Botswana uh, to, to, to try and, uh, and, and buy uh, you know, commodities you know, that are not available. I have, uh, 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 there are many refugees currently uh, from Mozambique uh, streaming into, into South Africa. Uh, there is a, a great deal of movement from uh, other Southern African countries, you know, to, towards uh, South Africa. I have heard, without not having any personal experience of this, of peoples having difficulties traveling from one country to another in Africa. Now, I'm talking here about ordinary people. And uh, that, uh, for me, it seems to me, this implies that uh, as long as ordinary people are not able to travel easily to make a living from one part of the, of the continent to another, we are far from realizing the, the, the dream of, uh, of, uh, of Pan-Africanism. What this implies, therefore, is that there can be no pan-Africanism, in my view, without addressing the concrete problems of, uh, of solving, uh, uh, evolving appropriate political institutions, of uh, uh, bringing about viable and meaningful economic development within, within Africa, coming up with educational systems that are relevant, that are designed to empower the vast majority of the people in, in, in our countries, coming up with uh, health, health uh, uh, policies and facilities that will ensure that people are healthy, uh, pro 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 programs for, for children and the aged, the whole lot. And it seems to me that there can be no sort of nation building uh, outside of the, con of the context of these concrete things. 
and and it seems to me that uh, uh, I don't know what what writers uh, you know specifically can do except uh, make a contribution from what they the, what they are good at we, we, which is to to tell uh, to tell stories uh, that uh, uh, enhance our insight into the human predicament uh, that that faces us and uh, and that uh, uh, for for us uh, in 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 South Africa for example we cannot afford to be pessimistic about political institutions uh, because there is no way I, in my view we can work however flawed they may be uh, we we have to to work with them and and through them and that those are programs I suppose that uh, while being rigorously uh, criticized and evaluated by writers and other informed citizens uh, it is also for, for, for political scientists and philosophers and so on to make a contribution as well uh, in thought. I wanted to, to just say that in terms of my own writing and development, it's very interesting how my sense of Pan-Africanism developed. Um, the first person who gave me um, a real understanding of what it was to be, to be black, to be African, was not aside from my grandparents who told stories to me every night. Uh, I went last night to hear Maya Angelou and she said, you know, my people are poets. That is what they are. Well, I'm supposed to write poetry because I had a poet every night. I had poetry. When we are born, the origi, we come into the world with poetry. But the first writer who, who really, who, 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 who I read was not African born, but was born in a diaspora. Leon Damas gave me a, exactly, it was when I read him and I really understood what he was saying. I understood for the first time exactly what colonialism was doing to me right in Africa. That it was somehow giving me a mirror that was not African through which I was to see myself. And therefore I was to see other African people. That is the opposite of what I think Pan-Africanism is about. And that led a kind of uh, like a ball of yarn. Um, when, when, when you read uh, the questioning um, from the other side of the, of the ocean, the first poem of, of, of County Cullen, which talked to me, what is Africa to me? There it was. And it wasn't just in the diaspora. It was for us in Africa, too, because we were not only regionalized, but we were also contextualized by the kind of colonialism to which we found ourselves imprisoned. And, and within that imprisonment, not only the body and the politics, but was also the psychological sense of who one is, how one sees oneself speaking through a particular language. How does the language that one speaks expresses one thought, and at what point could you Africanize the language, therefore Africanize the experience, therefore even though you are speaking English, French, da 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 da, -da you are still saying something, quote, African. And when you look at the politics, Blyden, these people had a positive vision of Africa. So then that made me say, what is it about this place, this thing called Africa? What is it that I don't know, that I must know, in order to now get me, myself, Africanized? And then it was there that I saw 
that perhaps it is that kind of, quote, distance which does not, in fact, totally separate, out of which the, 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 the view uh, the, can, can, can be, quote, clearer, if, if, if that is really what, what I mean. And, and so that I have been looking at, every time I have, quote, Africanized myself, or Africanized a situation, or Africanized another person, I have looked at who questions that. And, 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 and have tried to make some distinctions. And the writers, I think, that have most affected me, most affected me have been those writers who did, not, who did not see the physical separation of them from Africa as, as a cutoff point for who, who they were and how they functioned as Africans. If you look at the things that, 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 that Toni Morrison is writing. To me, this is African literature. And here is very appropriate, African-American, because it's African in content, it's African in, con in, 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 in context, but it is American in experiential content. So, so for me, being a writer and having this wide variety of African writers to choose from, has been um, very, very important. And then finally, when you look at how we are exiled from our own writers within our country, we haven't spoken to that. But I read Taib Salah, never thinking that I would meet him. So I'm very grateful for this, because <laughs> for me, it's. In my country, which is in Nigeria, which is 75% Muslim, here is a Muslim writer. I have to wait almost half my life to meet him, huh? but I read him. Whereas in Nigeria, Tess, you know, we couldn't read Chinua Achebe at the beginning. You remember there was a time when they didn't want things to fall apart to be read in the schools because it was considered political novel, right? And there were places even in Africa where African people didn't read these works. And even in other countries, the censoring. The censoring is not something that African people have suddenly done. I think we need, really need to look at how we have oppressed our people and the politics behind that oppression and see at what point is that typical of African behavior, at what point is that, quote, learned behavior. And I think that you will find a very interesting convergence of something that is learned and something that is new and something that somehow gets Africanized. We did not torture people the way we are being tortured now. We did not burn books. But there's something that is happening in Africa now and it is happening in the African world that I think a writer really has to be in the very forefront of, of talking about. Anyway, thank you. Back. Um, in part, what I was going to say has, has just been said. Um, <clears throat> when I mentioned um, that after four years out of circulation, I, three things have happened. Berlin Wall crumbling, Nelson Mandela being released, and people talking about multi-partyism. Uh, one of the things I had in mind was my hope for pan-Africanism. Mm. 
and I would like to first of all, um, as a form of gratitude and solidarity, I would like to um, expose myself as a typical example of modern Pan-Africanism. <laughs> what has happened to Africa while I was in detention four years is, I think, the type of Pan-Africanism which one would call non-institutionalized Pan-Africanism. Um, I did not know that fellow writers on the African continent, for instance, take that as an example, have been fighting for my release mm -hmm. until I came out. And right now, in England where I am living, I have a pile of seven files of fellow writers who have been fighting for my release. Now that, if that is not mm. the beginning of Pan-Africanism, then I cannot say it. Mm -hmm. And what is amazing about it is there have been three categories of this type of Pan-Africanism. I've had um, occasion to talk to Lusophone writers. One of the ones I met recently in Vienna is Bernardo uh, Luis uh, Honwana in Mozambique and the Lusophone community. They have been fighting to get me released. Um, in Vienna, I also met Dongala from Zaire. And when I met him and introduced myself to him, he got up and said, is it you? My traveling theater in Zaire had a thing specifically meant for your release. Yeah? And then I don't want to talk about Uganda, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and everywhere. I'm so overwhelmed and so deeply moved by this type of what I would like to call perhaps personal, sentimental, but definitely non-institutionalized form of Pan-Africanism. So, um, and I, fortunately, I discovered that it went beyond Africa um, to Europe, America, and Germany, England, even more in, in, in lots of cases, and so on and so forth. So, what I was going to suggest is um, in the vein of Njaburu, and in the vein of the platform here, not to give up. Um, the world now, the African world, is actually more seriously drawing to closer towards Pan-Africanism, and we ought to be doing that, especially with the, the wars that has fallen and crumbled. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, yeah, just uh, to add to what um, Jack has just said and Rashida and all the others, of course there is an Africa. Um, we forget sometimes that human beings had an awful lot of time <laughs> to, to do things. Um, we living now in our vanity think that the problems happen today and they will end when we go away. I mean, people had thousands of years to go from one end of the continent, or continents for that ma matter, uh, to the other. God knows where uh, the Red Indians in the uh, Americas came from. Maybe they came from Asia, as some scholars say. Uh, 
And I think the people who lived in this territory, so-called, to the consternation of my sister here, Eta Aido always gets really hit up when I say so-called Africa. <laughs> so-called because the notion, I mean the notion, of uh, what is Africa? This question, I think, is very new. What is Africa? What is uh, an American? What is a Muslim? What is this? What is that? People in the past just knew who they were without asking the question. And when I say so-called Africa, I mean the image of Africa in the minds of those who were our masters, who we all acknowledge, decided our terms of reference. Now there is this artificial um, separation in the minds of some people between the North Africans and the West Africans and the East Africans and the Central Africans and the South Africans. These are mere uh, convenient terms which the colonial powers in the place invented for, for, for their own use. They drew the maps, as we all know, quite haphazardly for administrative reasons. And of course, many of us fell into that trap because um, to grow up as a schoolboy looking at the map and all these reds and blues and God knows what. That too does something to the imagination. And some people think that that is how it was. It was not like that. And I'm glad that we have such a, an abundance of scholarship on this panel who, who know that it was not like that. Yes, there is a sense of African oneness, that there is some uh, communality of aspirations, sufferings, history, etc. Uh, I think the two uh, questions which uh, Professor Appiah raised, they interlink the question of is there a pan-Africanism pan still? And how about the question of human rights, individual rights. I ha have the feeling that the first flush of pan-Africanism happened because uh, it was simple, really, to fight the British or the French or the Italians, drive them from the continent. It so happened also that the leaders knew each other they were together in the Sorbonne, in Paris, or in London University. And the kind of fraternity, a club sense, a clique sense, existed between these ruler, rulers, which somehow, false as it was, carried on. I mean, it did create a sense of oneness, but it was totally false, because these people, um, were, to a great extent, privileged people. Uh, they were not totally representative of the aspirations of the people. They, they were loved by their own people. 
But as it turned out later on, they were too rarefied for the uh, actual problems of the continent. Now, uh, the people at the beginning, in my view, I hope I'm not going on too long, but I was too short at the beginning. <laughs> Feel free. Um, the people were uh, drunk by this heady wine of independence. And they did not question their leaders where they were leading them. Now people are beginning to be wiser to look at the actual uh, specific problems. What have they done? I mean, they have not built after, uh, on average, 30, 40 years of independence, a railway the, 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 the dream of the colonizers was to have a railway from, from the Mediterranean to the Cape. It, it did not exist. It doesn't exist. They have not created what could be called an African common market. They have not opened the borders to, to the mobility of people because ultimately, as I think Professor Mbeleli said, uh, that is actually the crux. People want to move and settle and work wherever they can and, and, and intermarry. Now, these, these th specific things haven't happened, and I think that people are beginning to understand. They, uh, on the whole, also, I think that people have started to realize that they have paid too high a price in uh, individual freedom uh, because they thought, well, it's all for a good cause. Now people are beginning to say, no, uh, it is not for a good cause. So to that extent, there is a new realization and maybe a new sense of pan-Africanism, which is all to the good in my view. Thank you. And before uh, asking for questions from, from you, I just wanted to try one other line, which is, at, in some ways, at the other level of generality, uh, moving now from talking about uh, relations within the black world taken globally, um, to ask what you think, uh, what the panel thinks, what any member of the panel thinks, about the importance and the significance of uh, work written in Africa in languages other than the international languages of Arabic, English, French, and Portuguese work in the, uh, what we call, perhaps misleadingly, African languages. Uh, since, of course, English and French and Portuguese and Arabic are as, as much African languages now as uh, many others. What do people think about the significance of, of writing in, in those languages? Do they feel, is there evidence that it's surviving and flourishing? Um, does that survival, if it occurs, reflect uh, an anxiety about using languages that are associated with colonization? Or is this question too boring and should we turn over to the audience? <laughs> I, I just think um, um, on, the, on the positive, as a positive example of that, one finds that in Tanzania that uh, um, um, President Nyerere um, 
um, made Swahili a kind of language of, 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 of instruction and textbooks and so forth were, were, were written in, in, in Swahili. But I think that, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of using any verbal means that will enhance the sense of a person, especially uh, the relationship between African languages, because at least in my, in my case, and I know many of my friends, uh, when we were going to school, we were, we were, we were uh, very firmly, sometimes punitively um, um, dealt with if we did not speak in the colonial language um, of the country, uh, and we were uh, not allowed in schools to speak an African language. I think that the problem of t teaching, uh, of, of using an African language, is again because we have to use a Western system of phonics and also a kind of Western system in terms of the whole technology of publishing. So that the extent to which we, we have to pan-Africanize um, our world, Africa, I think if that is what it takes, then I, I, I think that it, it, it should take place on that, on that very large level, that we begin to teach it in, in, in our schools, uh, which means that we will have a pan-Africa because we will be able to, to, be, to be joined by languages, by, 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 by languages, and Krumah uh, certainly spoke to that. He talked about the possibility of using specific languages because they were spoken over large geographic spaces and because they were spoken by large populations. But I think the technology that is involved in it certainly implies on the one hand that on a philosophical and a political level there is a pan-Africanism that has to be developed. And I think on the other level, on the, on the implemental level then, it implies a technology that, that, that is based on the system of phonics and that implies also uh, the, the, the wherewithal of, of, of printing and, and, and of instruction. Um, and so um, since we are not uh, um, resuscitating um, Mero or, or some traditional African language which has its own script, um, um, I think that we would have to develop that, that system um, in, not only uh, from a technological point of view, but also from, from a socio-political point of view. I personally encourage it. I think that it is a very fine, a very fine idea, and I think that it leads us one step to being truly pan-African. Uh, just um, uh, a technical point concerning the, the use of uh, uh, African um, languages. Uh, I am not going to generalize. My uh, colleagues from uh, South Africa could uh, speak about uh, the literature in uh, African languages from South Africa. I'd like to note just two or three main points concerning the usage of uh, African languages. Uh, the Arabic language have been, uh, have been used for uh, centuries mm -hmm. in order to convey uh, African literature not only in the northern part of the continent but also in the eastern part of mm -hmm. the continent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, secondly, I'd like to note this which is not uh, widely known uh, in terms of a philosophy. One of uh, one of the most important uh, African philosophers who passed away some years ago, Alexis Kagame, uh, back in uh, the 40s, published 
an immense work in uh, Kenya, Rwanda, and uh, we find in uh, that library he left when he passed away a monumental history of uh, the universe in uh, verses, which is uh, in uh, Kenya, Rwanda. And uh, at the same time, he wrote important theological and uh, philosophical essays in uh, Kenya, Rwanda for uh, his people. Let me add this, since uh, I am speaking of uh, uh, theology. We do have right now uh, an edition made by two Roman Catholic priests, uh, a Belgian, François Bonting, and uh, a Zairean, Damas Ntansi from Zaire, an edition of the first catechism in uh, Kikongo, a language of uh, Central Africa, and uh, this catechism uh, was published at the beginning of uh, the 17th century. Back in uh, the 60s, when I was uh, in Rwanda, one of the most popular uh, paper was uh, the Kinyamateka, which was uh, being published in uh, Kenya, Rwanda. And I can also add, for purely technical reasons, that uh, in Central Africa, in the 10s and uh, in the 20s, there was another paper, Nkuruse, which was completely written in uh, Chiluba. And uh, in uh, the 50s, for example, if uh, you think of one of the most important politicians in Central Africa, Joseph Kazavubu, uh, his activists were using Kikongo in papers, in uh, publicity, and uh, in uh, dailies in order to make their political point against Belgian colonization. And uh, finally, let me add that uh, from uh, the 40s to uh, the 70s and uh, to the 90s, there is in uh, Central Africa, and by Central Africa I mean uh, Burundi, Rwanda, Central Africa, uh, Congo, and Zaire, there is a history of writing novels and particularly plays in uh, African uh, languages. And uh, in the 70s, the team, the international team of uh, the University of Zaire uh, in uh, the Center for uh, Applied Linguistics developed a method of teaching, uh, uh, of teaching and using African languages to teach uh, Zairean uh, students uh, in primary schools. I don't know what the situation is now, but uh, when I left Zaire in uh, 1980, in principle, in all primary schools, uh, Zairean students, Zairean pupils, were introduced to knowledge through their own languages, the two or three first years of uh, the primary school. And to conclude, I'd like to add this, which is not known even uh, in uh, our milieu, intellectual milieu. There is a magnificent library, which is called uh, Les Classiques Africains in Paris, uh, a library edited by Eric de Dampierre from the University of Paris 9, uh, Paris 10. He began this work back in the 50s, and uh, the library consists of a collection, a series, of uh, important books uh, which present a number of African classics in African languages with uh, a French translation. And uh, so far, Eric de Dampierre and uh, his team have published 22 excellent classics 
from Africa in African languages, which means that we have gone beyond the problem of can we, can't we write and translate our languages. I thank you. Uh, I just wanted to comment uh, on four issues relating to language very quickly. Uh, perhaps we might elaborate that discussion time. One is on the issue of uh, language and democracy. Uh, the second point is, is, is on the issue of language and development. Uh, the third issue is actually on the, on the, on the, on the question of language and culture. And, and perhaps the other uh, important issue that is particularly illustrative for me is church and language. I think that language is at the heart of denial in Africa. One of the things from which Africa is currently suffering from is a crisis of legitimacy. And this has to do, of course, with a leadership that has, in the eyes of the vast majority of the people it governs, lost legitimacy. And part of the manner in which this legitimacy was lost had to do, in no small measure, with language. The fact that language was actually used to eliticize certain segments of society and make those segments of society dominant dominant in terms of power, dominant in terms of resources, dominant in terms of access to education, dominant in every possible way, conceivable way, I beg your pardon. Language was, I want to suggest, at the heart of this matter. There are instances in Africa where you could not become a member of parliament unless you spoke the official language, invariably English, French, or some such language. Which meant then, since this language was spoken by a minuscule of the populations of Africa, democracy was an aborted effort right from the beginning. The vast majority of people who could have represented the interests of their people in their own language were suddenly deprived of language and therefore deprived of voice. I think the, the crisis of denial in Africa of legitimacy is tied to language. Think of the vast human resources in Africa that are marginalized at the level of language. Productive forces that must first learn to master some language before they can actually, when they already have a language, mm -hmm. okay, but must yet master a language before they can become productive, even as messengers, for goodness sake. And there you have a crisis, a serious crisis that derives from language. I think language and culture are, 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 are so self-evident in very many ways. Uh, you know, this is no original idea that every language is culture-specific, carries all that particular baggage. And one of the problems in Africa, it seems to me, that looms as large as the problem of underdevelopment, perhaps, is the problem of alienation. And that, too, can be located somewhat within language. I think here of two innocent children uh, I once encountered in Khaborone in Botswana, behind whom I was walking, who were walking back from, from school, back home.
But before they could go back home, they had to go and collect the only uh, newspaper uh, that was published in Khabarone, in Botswana at that time, called the Daily News. Just one, sometimes two sheets that you could collect either in English or in Botswana. When the elderly man who sits there distributing these papers saw these children, he instinctively reached out for the Tswana version of the daily news. Whereupon they looked at this and thrust it right back into his face and told him in impeccable English that they don't read this language. There is a serious crisis there of alienation and de-alienation, which must surely be as important in Africa as development in a material sense, must and cannot afford not to take cognizance of language. The church must be seen as an example, I think, in Africa, in Asia, in all the formerly colonized world of what language can do. I don't know of a single instance in which the church came into any of our countries and insisted on English and insisted on French. They did, at least in my part of the world, as in Yoruba land and many other parts of the land. One, they translated the Bible into our indigenous languages. Two, they translated John Bunyan, <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. <laughs> Protestants did that, I imagine. <laughs> Um, unless anybody's going to feel heavily oppressed by this decision, I'd like to ask now for questions from the audience. But as I said at the start, please um, come up uh, to a microphone so that everybody can hear you. And please, if possible, exercise the same delicate restraint that our speakers have already exercised in keeping yourself to a reasonable amount of time. Um, so please feel free to come up. Just feel free to come up to a microphone. And uh, since greeting is important, maybe we should begin by saying our names. Okay. My name is Bernstein Forrest. I'd like to ask Jack Mapanji mm -hmm. two questions. Uh, one, why were you detained? And two, why were you released? I'm aware that the official explanations of these events may not be available from the government and that it may be difficult for you to read the minds of your jailers. But uh, I'm wondering if you have any insights or opinions or speculations that might help us to understand these events and understand what's going on in Malawi today. Uh, <clears throat> when I was uh, arrested, I was told his Excellency, the Life President, has informed us to detain you. When I was released, I was told it has, it has pleased His Excellency to release you. Exactly, fine. My camera. <laughs> okay, um, excuse me. Greetings to our African ancestors like uh, Lumumba, Malcolm X, uh, Natana, 
Nkrumah, Marcus Garvey, and so on. And uh, the spirits of uh, slaves thrown overboard by white slave masters to be eaten by sharks. My question is this, why has this gathering taken place here and not in the black African community where it should have been really organized? And also, isn't the fate of the African writers similar to that of Professor Leonard Jeffries, who like uh, uh, his comrades have been defiled, vilified, and so on? I, you know, I really would like the, this gathering to uh, address that because I think it is very, very vital to the black community here. Can I say that um, I don't think uh, they're free to say anything they like about the first question, but they didn't decide, none of the panelists decided, and nor did I, uh, where we would meet. Uh, we just agreed to come. Um, but feel, uh, anybody who wants to answer either of these questions, should, of course, feel free to do so. Nor are we very, I, most people who live in Africa don't know about uh, Leonard Jeffries. Uh, and I don't understand why so many people in New York know about him either. What was the second question? What was your second question? Excuse me, if you, if you, if you would want me to amplify, I would. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, uh, Professor Leonard Jeffries is the chair uh, of uh, uh, the city, uh, the Black uh, um, Studies uh, Department at City College. And he had uh, made uh, statements which have been uh, taken to be very, very anti-Semitic because or anti-Italian, anti-white, and so on. Because he has proposed uh, that, and other, other, other writers and people have done the same, but he has come out to say the curriculum here is, you know, miseducating the African and that it needs to be changed. And he gave many, many reasons as to who took part in slavery, uh, uh, matters that were really shelved uh, underneath and he came forth with all these uh, various ideas and he had been threatened with death and I, I would like you know, uh, you know uh, because I think his problem is also the problem of the African writer in Africa and talking about pan-Africanism it is the same pan-Africanist uh, concept we are dealing with here because what affects someone here affects the person in the continent. Oh, Thank you. But then, may I speak? I would like to, no, I would like to ask a question, a question of, uh, of method. Uh, since we are talking and uh, you are referring to Professor Jeffries, I would like to ask you before we begin responding the following. Could you comment on uh, an alleged commentary Professor Jeffries would have done concerning one of my colleagues and friend who is a professor at Harvard University. Um, okay, the point here. Okay, look, I came here to ask a question and not well, to ask the question. Okay. So if you're willing to answer the questions, I am very, very willing to go and sit down. Let me just. Let, Hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. Wait a minute. Listen. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. People on the panel. People on the. People on the panel want to say something, and I would like to allow them to say it. Answer him because I think I have asked a question, and I don't want to be asked a question. You're free to ask nothing. You're free to be silent. Uh, I think Amma was first and then yeah. Tess. Um, it will really be a pity if this, the, you know, uh, sort of uh, 
reduced it. This forum got reduced into some kind of a heckling match. Uh, and us apologizing. So please, don't let get into that. I wanted to respond to you in terms of what you yourself had posited. If you think that any of us on this panel is capable of commenting meaningfully on events in New York, <laughs> then uh, uh, how can you, in the same breath, ask us why we are not having this forum in an African country? Do you see what I'm saying? Um, in an African the thing is, did you invite us? If you had invited us, if you had, if you had invited us, we would come. Really? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Hold on. I'd like to respond to your question, too. Why? That's the first question. Why is this forum taking place here? Uh, my own way of looking at it is that uh, perhaps uh, what we are dealing with uh, the politics of space in our world today. And uh, it goes back again to uh, what I had uh, expressed yeah. earlier about this uh, problem of building walls. You know, we, we, we seem to have fallen into, into the, the, the cells that have been uh, built for us. Um, and we seem to define our existence within the, world, the, the circumscribed worlds that have been built uh, uh, for and around us. And I believe that if we are to take strides into the next century as a people, collectively, in the spirit of Pan-Africanism and in our own spirits at the affirmation of our own collective identity, we should see the whole world as our own space and not define ourselves in that circumscribed space that uh, within which we can put some money in the meter, you know, no parking, uh, uh, no entry, and so on and so forth, you know, uh, no trespassing. The land belongs to us, the world belongs to us, and we can ride it anyway. I'd like to make a few comments and ask a question about an issue of uh, very great concern to me, which is the repressive aspect of culture. Not, of course, that's very severe, the repression that occurs in particular countries, uh, but also, the, let's say, the larger prison of uh, culture throughout the world where issues are blacklisted, uh, not just individuals, but whole issues. The politics of absolute poverty has no effective organization like Greenpeace addressing mm -hmm. it. AIDS cure. I mean, there is protest groups, but no initiative referendum in any state or locality. And these blacklisting of these issues is of genocidal consequence. And certainly the role of writers, I'm, I wrote down Conan Doyle, uh, Garcia Marquez, and Mamala Ora, Gwendolyn Brooks, and many others, are often the cutting edge when an issue is driven underground. It's the authors and writers who bring it to the greatest level of explicit understanding possible. And I was wondering how the tradition of courage um, and, 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 and courage as being a crucial virtue in leadership 
can challenge the structure of privilege in communication. We, we purport to be a free, free society based on free expression and not enforced privilege, but that's false. I, I think not so much of the uh, story of the, the pigeon and the, and the tortoise, uh, t tortoise and the pigeons, which is like the misuse of political power for self-aggrandizement, I think, of, but the Twilight Zone episode of invisibility where somebody's forehead is marked with a piece of something and where everyone sees them and they, they're supposed to isolate that person and, not, and treat them with disdain. That's, or, or Trapper John M.D. where he says, champagne for our real friends and real pain for our sham friends. How do we transcend this monumental and comprehensive enforcement of repression and blacklisting of whole issues uh, in politics through literature and the hierarchy of oppression uh, addressed in that way. How can we, how can Thanks writers break the ice and how it affects Africa? Thank you. Anyone like to start with that one? I think you should change the language first of all and not say blacklisted. <laughs> but what, what would you propose? Well, I think that you're intelligent, so I'd leave that up to you, but I would say bad listing and censoring is horrible no matter who does it and where it occurs. It seems to me that it occurred quite strenuously here. It has occurred throughout the century every single place, so that that is not a significant issue. I mean, if you are saying how it is addressed in Africa, that's another story. Uh, but if you are saying that African people are not concerned about, about the, the plight of, of their continent, um, I think that that's not exactly true. And I don't know necessarily that Greenpeace or any particular group outside the country is more qualified, less qualified, does more or does less than people inside because the people inside who are experiencing the hunger and the deprivation are still living and celebrating and we are products of those people. And I celebrate those starving people that you see on the television that are utilized for other purposes. If you take away IMF, if we could go back and, and, and farm our own land, if we could build this railroad not for the traverse of commerce, hmm? We would, have, we would have a better system, but we cannot develop an infrastructure because the Western world needs our uranium. They need our bauxite. You have to drink your coffee. We cannot drink our own coffee. That is the problem in Africa. But wait, no, 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 wait. But, but you're saying about writers. Then you haven't read, I would assume, some of the writers on this very panel. So I think that the work is, is for you. And when I hear this question, I always want to ask the person, but what have you read? Ama Atu wrote a beautiful little short story in which, if you read it, she places the Second World War. There's a story in there about this, this woman who, who, whose, whose husband went away to the, sec to the war and he never returned. And at night, she goes to lock up the, the, the gate. And when she goes to lock up the gate, she hears a rustling and she says, is it he who has returned? And you realize that this woman has been waiting maybe 20 years. That is a political context because what were we doing in the First or the Second World War when it was about somebody else and not about us? Considering that we are not in the history of the Second World War, you don't hear at all about that West Africa was bombed. Our countries were bombed. We had occupation. We were fighting each other because one person was wearing a, a British uniform and somebody else was wearing a German uniform. Those are in the literatures of people right on this panel. So I'm saying that the work should not be for the African writer to quote, put it there. But you must also read, you must also say that there were some other people involved other than, other than, and how we got in the war, and what were we doing in it, and what did we do once we were in it. 
those are questions that Langston Hughes said, when, a, when, when, when you read, you must also take responsibility. You must take the responsibility to hear what the person is saying, and you must read it. And I think that that's what all of us should do. I'm going to cut you off because there's quite a lot of people. Go ahead. First of all, I would like to welcome all of my brothers and sisters here today. And my question is, um, thank you. <laughs> kind of short here. Um, my question is basically to the sisters on the panel, but the brothers are also welcome to, to elaborate. Um, how can we, as African women, and an African woman myself in the diaspora, um, how do you say, spread the knowledge? There are sisters in my community that could really use this knowledge. So to know that they are not alone in their oppression, how would, how would one go about spreading our knowledge internationally, more so than what it already is? Yeah. Um, at the risk of sort of indicating really how ancient I am, <laughs> I would say that, you know, I've been coming to the United States for quite a long time. Um, two answers. One is that, you know, it is, it is not even right for me. I don't feel it is right for me to come from Africa to tell you what ought to be done here. I mean, you are in the situation, you know it best. At best, you can tell me what I could do, and then we'll do it together, mm -hmm. you see. So, um, I think that's one answer. The other, the other thing is that, of course, I take it that you also imply what we can do in Africa in spreading uh, the, the, you know, what you nicely describe as our knowledge and so on and so forth. If I want to escape the question, I would say, but I'm a writer. I am doing my bit, writing <laughs> my stories. And, and stuff like that. And I think, in fact, it is not escaping the question at all. Because there is, a, there is a great temptation. I told you how I had adventured into even gov government, right? I mean, uh, there is a great temptation for one to spread oneself thin. Uh, you know, so that is it. I mean, and I think that in a way, perhaps, the best one can do as a writer, as a woman writer, is to go on writing. The other thing, of course, is that it is not just here in this world. In a way, what was so frightening about that question the, the young brother asked had, was not the question he asked, but how he had asked it. You know, it was like aggressing us. But we ask these questions among ourselves in Africa. What, you know, because there is, there is so much that our government claim they, they have to do. Inviting writers to fora, you know, to give readings in African, in African universities, African communities, do not happen. 
at least not as much as we would want. And which of us has the money to buy our own tickets from Zimbabwe to Nairobi, Kenya? You know what I mean? So there are a lot of logistics, uh, you know, to, to discuss in, 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 um, in, in pursuance of what you have said. But that is not to give up. I mean, these are issues we'd like, you know, I think we should be grateful that people like you would bring up. We hope things will get better and uh, we'll put some projects on the ground. Thank you. Yes. Again, to her question about uh, what uh, the African uh, women or the female writers should do. Um, in our world today, I, get, I tend to get the feeling that mm -hmm. the word has uh, shifted. You know, the power of the word is no longer in the mouth. And uh, to some extent, you know, the, the paper is too light even to carry it. And television um, is where the power is. So the image, uh, the visual image, in fact, it's, more com it's becoming much more concrete. Uh, on television, um, you know, the video, uh, uh, film, and those uh, media, because they do not just There are quite a few people here, but it's only you here who can hear what we're saying now. And uh, in terms of the books that are written, how many people are really reading? I don't, I'm not saying that people don't read. But uh, the, the uh, greater power lies beyond what is written and what is said to what is out there in the, in the portable, uh, 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 technologized uh, medium of the television, the film houses. And they go far. They travel far and wide. So uh, I would, if I had the means, I would like to uh, take my drama uh, the dialogue that I uh, uh, initiate uh, on the stage, beyond just the physical stage, onto uh, that uh, small thing you carry around, the television, because that's where the power lies. And I see us in, in the next century uh, being left behind if we are not able to uh, utilize that. That is why Japan is coming ahead of almost everyone else. Thank Can I just uh, thank you very much. I'd like to say something which is that um, at the present rate, with the people now standing, we have about three minutes each. And I'd like both questioners and panelists to bear that in mind. <laughs> so. Well, my name is Buyani. Uh, I, I got quite a lot of messages from what the writers have been saying. And uh, I need to check thoroughly if I am correct in believing that whenever a writer writes, he writes because he is inspired to write. In other words, because of the inspiration that comes out, then the writing begins. Is it possible, therefore, if that is true, for writers to target the kind of audience that they want to reach? Can they say, all right, now I want to reach the grassroots and I'm going to write in that kind of level. 
and begin to address the problems or rather try and make the people uh, you know look into their problems if writers write through inspiration is it possible to target the kind of audience uh, i don't know whether i'm putting this question properly and the other question is based on can I, can uh, I suggest idea we of ration ourselves to one question because we're running out of time and if everybody's going to get one question and a decent answer, we're going to have to be brief. Fine, I don't know. Yes. I mean, it's a good question, so surely it will produce good answers from starting with whom? I've not been very successful this evening because I, I really thought I could dodge a lot of things, but it's not working. Uh, I think at times we must, we must demystify the notion of being a writer, I think. Uh, and, and, and this has to do with the very notion, inspiration. You, know? uh, you think of a writer as a kind of special mad person, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you know, who, who, who like that dog that might give you r r rabies uh, sort of has, has to have something uh, kind of extra that sets apart and, 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 and so on. Uh, it seems to me to be a mystification, that notion of, of, of inspiration. I think writers are very, very ordinary people and most ordinary people can become writers. Uh, those who do become writers simply do sit down and write lots and lots and lots of pages. Uh, sometimes not a lot of what they write is worth you know, much on, on that kind of paper. Uh, there isn't much of, 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 of that for me uh, uh, that, that is legitimate about the process of being a writer. I certainly, uh, I certainly don't even think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as somebody who writes sometimes. Uh, and I, I am more comfortable thinking of myself as a classroom teacher, for example. Mm -hmm. At least a chalk and a blackboard are more concrete to me mm -hmm. than the notion of inspiration and being a writer uh, and so on. So I just have problems at that level. Unfortunately, I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> I mean, I write full time or try to. Uh, I've been a teacher and a couple of other things too. Um, Inspiration, you see, again, it is this whole business to do with language again. Eh? Inspiration. I think I do agree with Mulelo, though, on that issue, that sometimes writing is, is really mystified or over-mystified. I also agree that a whole lot of people can write than are writing. You know, people say things that I want to write, but I know I can't. And the question back is, how can you know you, you, know, you cannot write if you had not tried. Um, so uh, writing can be a fairly ordinary enterprise. But I do, uh, I, we have to all admit that there is an area where the things we write get cooked, you know, in our subconscious or someplace, and we don't have too much control over that one. I mean, uh, at least I don't think so. The only control we exercise is when this thing comes up and then, I think it is possible, it is possible to literally write to anything you choose to. Uh, I think writers are like any other artist. We can manipulate whatever it is, you know, we have got to say. And uh, those of us who believe that you cannot live in, in a situation and pretend not to be aware of the political and other implications <laughs> 
going around you can be labeled political, you know, and so on and so forth. But it, it, they probably come from the same source, except that, you know, when it, when it comes up, this material, you can, you can use it to serve almost any end you choose as a writer. And this is where questions of integrity, etc., et begin to crop in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'll be very, no, I'll be very, very brief, brief because I'd like to, uh, to, to advance uh, another perspective which is perhaps more humble. Uh, I do write because uh, I have an agenda and uh, I do write because I want to advance a cause and uh, I do write because uh, I'd like to contribute to collective projects I believe in, period. Thank you. <laughs> I belong to a civil liberties organization in Nigeria. I belong to a civil liberties organization in Nigeria, and I know that there are a number of human rights organizations springing up in various African countries. There is also an African Charter of Human Rights, which has some major defects. But I wonder if this gives any of you room for optimism, and if any of you consider working or writing in different ways to. Uh, to use this uh, new development. Yes, yes. Uh, I think this, uh, <coughs> this, this very interesting question in a way links up with the, the previous question of, which I found very interesting. Uh, uh, can literature, in a sense, become propaganda? Uh, and work specifically for the furtherance of a, a specific cause. I, the way I look at it is that um, art, generally, literature, has a kind of cumulative, cumulative effect. How do you say that in English? In English, it's not my mother tongue. Um, accumulative effect. And uh, although there is some very good uh, propagandist literature, it is, it is difficult on the whole. And I think it's Mbulele himself who said in uh, Brown University that the, the literature of protest, if I got him correctly, in South Africa is now over. I mean, there was, you, you did say that, no? I think you did. <laughs> In the sense that the uh, literature was mobilized, everything mo was mobilized at a certain time, and there is a reason even to write badly uh, for a good cause. Uh, but that, I think that lasts a very short time, and it is not always um, uh, good literature. So the question of human rights, individual <laughs> rights, uh, I think now it, people in Africa and outside Africa for that matter are more aware of it partly because of what the writers, the poets have done. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Yeah. Um, Tunde Fatunde is my name. I'm from Nigeria. Um, I just want to raise one small comment of very few words. 
and the, the comment is on what I call the material conditions uh, of writing in Africa. We are witnessing uh, the rise of democracy in difficult conditions. But at the same time, um, the material conditions of writing and of, of existence is not encouraging in a world where about between eight to 10 trillions of dollars are used for the arms race. And I think um, we are in a period where the writers should also be part of what I call a movement for peace and equal rights. Because the military industrial world of all over the world, both in the third and the developing world, I think are not ready to um, are not ready to um, to lose the privilege of producing arms, even when there is no cause for war. And one of the implications of this is that there are cuts in social services, in education, in health, uh, and in, in cultural activities such as we have now. And it is happening everywhere in the world. And I think it will be pertinent and instructive for our writers to be aware of this new trend. On one hand, we have democracy. On the other hand, uh, the material conditions for satisfying this democracy is not there simply because of the arms race. Last point. And the last point uh, is about all forms of extremism. Because any form of extremism is extremely dangerous to the existence of literature and writers. And uh, for this, there is, unfortunately for this occasion, uh, we have not celebrated writing in terms of poetry reading or reading of uh, passages or <coughs> paragraphs from our different works. I have a short poem uh, titled, I have a short poem titled Oxygen, very short. Oxygen has no home. Its house is in everybody's lungs and heart. Oxygen knows no race or tribe. It is the selfish who tries to appropriate it. Nothing is special about us. Everybody needs oxygen, no matter what. Only if, we, only if you wish to die and die selfishly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, sure, I'm sure that most of our writers wouldn't want to be caught uh, trying to trump a poem, so I'll move on to the next question. Hello, my name is uh, Adriano. Um, unfortunately, the information that I receive about the so-called third world stems from publications such as uh, the Christian Science Monitor and The Economist. I was wondering from the panelists if you could uh, perhaps recommend other uh, uh, journals or, or publications that Transition are Magazine. <laughs> yeah, Transition okay. Magazine. And also, um, <laughs> if, uh, is there a question on, on whether there should be perhaps more publications or perhaps there are things that aren't being met in the international discussion of some of the issues involved that were brought up here. I think race and class is a good is good publications. I think Zed um, do good work. Um, I think there's a again the, the the thing I said to the to the gentleman before is that there's a tremendous amount of literature out here which is informative. Um, 
If you read uh, uh, Nawal al-Sadawi's work, you get a, a very strong sense of not only gender literature, but of class, of space, of geographic location. Um, if you read um, um, any of the writer's works uh, uh, up here, Ama uh, Aitu, um, I, I think you would get a very strong sense of, of, of African culture. I mean, the, the, you know, you mustn't think of the writer as being somehow separated from the culture. That was kind of what I was trying to say, that, you know, you locate yourself within your culture and where, where your body happens to go, that's where your African culture or whatever culture happens to reside. But I think that if you read some of the works of just the writers here alone, um, if you go to Ubu, um, Ubu um, traditionally has two very interesting uh, programs on West 28th Street. They have usually a celebration of African writers who write in French all translated in French. One of the translators is here. Um, uh, they, they are in the process now of having the, 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 the end of their series of, uh, of, of Caribbean literature written in French. Uh, Martinique writer will, uh, actually, this is not a Martinique-born writer, but uh, from Guadeloupe, um, uh, Marie Condé. Her work will soon be there. So I think that there are, there are forums, and you have to really avail yourself. I think that we are almost over-proliferated with, with literature, which means that we are destroying trees. So I'm always caught in this dilemma of how we sometimes justify bringing out yet another bunch of paper and at the same time being cons concerned about ecology. I mean, we have to make some kinds of, 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 of connections. And I think, finally, that you have to demand of the, p the press and the multimedia in print and in uh, video that you have to demand that they take a responsible position. If you wrote a letter and said, look, I live in an apartment complex, there are 48 apartments here, there are 500 persons, and I am not going to buy uh, Cheerios, and they represent 50 children in this building. I'm not going to buy Cheerios because you, you promoted blah, 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 blah. And I'm a member of the PTA, I'm going to, to blast Cheerios. I guarantee you, you will have a qualitative piece of literature on children, you'll have a wonderful uh, uh, movie that you can take the whole family to, but we don't exercise those small things. And yet we organize to write a campaign to get Jack Mapanji out of, out, of, out of jail. There's something wrong with the way we locate struggle. We make it very distant. Each person is, 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 is the struggle, and if you feel that way, write. Do something. Say something. My name is Monene, I'm from Kenya, and I'm very enlightened by the comments of the panel. In a way, you have answered a question that Chinua Achembe asked uh, about three years ago. What can a people do to, uh, what can a people do to a piece, an embittered history? My question is, uh, within answering this question of an embittered history, my sister has just raised a question that's very important. You have Africa Watch as part of the sponsor of this forum. You have human rights as a part of the component of this forum. Yet, I have not quite heard very clearly of human rights in Africa. And there is a large group of people who are trying to articulate to, to the Americans and to the world that there are a lot of human rights abuses. Uh, I don't know whether it's literature, but The Man Died is a book that has been used to uh, uh, bring a lot of people into consciousness. Goge is detained and a whole lot of others. Mm. Or memoirs that are coming out from young people. Uh, Wanyere Kihoro wrote about, uh, uh, about his prison experiences. 
there are people in Kenya, in Kaduna, places where they, they, they think what they, their work and they're paid by the state is to smash men's testicles, uh, to put soda ash into women's private parts. This is happening all over Africa and it's a continuing fight that we are, we are trying to get across. I haven't had this, but simply because it's a part of the forum, I'm a bit disturbed. I'd like for people at least to go and know that these groups are fighting and are out there and this is a part of Africa that we are bringing out and fighting very, very strongly to, to change. Thank you. Um, I think we are grateful that uh, we've been reminded of this. In fact, um, people have commented that um, until Africa is, is fully free also in this, I mean, in the area of human rights, uh, we are joking when we talk about development. And that brings one uh, to the point that uh, my sister Rashida made earlier. I think this is the first time I'm disagreeing with you on any issue and so publicly. Rashida, <laughs> we also tortured in Africa. Exactly. You know, I mean, our emperors, our kings, they tortured. And sometimes, I mean, when you look at the systems mm -hmm. of torture that are being used by our contemporary mm -hmm. rulers, some of them came from the past, like burying somebody alive with his head, you know, above ground, and putting a piece of meat on his head so that crows would come and, and peck. Yeah, you know, that's true. that one wasn't dreamed by mm -hmm. anybody exactly. but us. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and um, I think also in response to the question that we have not celebrated writing, maybe I'll read you one page only of a poem, uh, and the title is A Modern African Story. Yes, strange as it may sound, it is true. I got deported this morning from my home, my village, my country, and the land which my forefathers and foremothers bled for and tilled from the beginning of time. My crime, I look like my cousin from across the border, and his president and my prime minister do not see eye to eye. Mind you, my brother the professor protest that theoretically and linguistically, it simply doesn't make sense. No one can ever be deported from their native country. I was packing as he was talking. I had no time to stop and tell him to look around. In a land where former freedom fighters are vagrants or by respectability, only by guarding the property for those they mortgage their youths to fight against, the factories and the homes they crawled at night in the good old days to burn, one can be deported from one's birthplace. And I was this morning. Thank you, Thank you very much. I'm afraid, I'm afraid we've run out of time and it seems, it seems appropriate to end with a poem by a poet. Uh, we, we, we are now uh, after our time. You can, you can talk.
Well, uh, we, 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 I'm, I'm going to be less kind and gentle. Uh, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, members of the panel. And there is now a reception. No, no, no.